Okay, Kate, let's get started. I'm Charlie Gibson. And I'm Kate Gibson. And today, our guest for what I think you'll find a very interesting conversation is somebody who knows politics, and particularly presidential politics, on the inside, probably as well as anybody in the country. David Gergen has written a new book on leadership. It is called Hearts Touched with Fire, and it is about leadership. What's new to say about leadership? Okay, I think he actually has some things to say that are new. Well, first, I think it's worth examining his perspective for the simple reason that he served in the White House under both conservative and democratic presidents. And I think anybody who comes from that rare of a perspective these days, what they have to say about leadership is worth reading and worth hearing. He served in the Nixon White House, the Ford White House, the Reagan White House, and the Clinton White House. Interesting that somebody on the Democratic side would invite someone into the White House to serve as a senior advisor when he had served three presidents from the other party. What he essentially says is it's time for new leadership. We have had old folks. We've had seven presidents, I think he says, in a row who came out of World War II, starting with Kennedy. And now we need younger people. He he talks about leadership as, as the ability to persuade others, to mobilize others to your cause. But that isn't happening today. And he describes himself as a short-term pessimist, but a long-term optimist. But he does have a perspective on leadership, a perspective on the White House that is pretty much unrivaled in today's political world. So, David Gergen, our conversation. David Gergen, it is a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. It was a pleasure (laughs) to work with you when I was in the news business. And it's a pleasure to see you now. You've written this book on leadership. And I just this morning uh, was Googling leadership books, and there are thousands of them. What do you bring to the table that's different? Well, on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and and Saturdays, I wake up thinking about that question. (laughs) On other days, I come back and think, no, there's some things to be said. And I think one of the things that distinguishes this new book is to aim it mostly at a younger audience, the rising generation. From my experience, I came to Washington when the uh, World War II generation was running the show. And we had presidents from Kennedy through George H.W. Bush, seven presidents in a row. Each of them wore a military uniform. They all fought under the same flag. And in my judgment, they became the greatest generation, as Tom Brokaw called them, because they had bonded and fought for principles and they put their lives on the line for the country. So when they came back and stripped off their uniforms, they wanted to be civically engaged. By contrast, those of us who are baby boomers, and I'm not quite a baby boomer. I was born in 42. I'm a preemie <laughs> for the boomer generation. Uh, but And I bear some responsibility for this. I think those of us who were in the baby boom generation did not serve the country as well. And from my point of view, if we're going to get out of the mess we're in now, one of the most important things we need to do is to pass the baton, to welcome in a new generation of people who are younger, who have fresh ideas, who have fresh commitment, and bring fresh idealism to the table. And that's the group that I'm trying to speak to, to urge them to get into the public arena, to come and prepare themselves for lives of service and leadership. That, I think, is vital. And so the book is essentially a call to that rising generation, as well as a practical guidebook 
for anybody who wants to get into the arena, but especially for people who are millennials and Gen Z, for example. I think that this is a guidebook. It's a practical guidebook. How do you succeed at this? How do you bring change? What's leadership about? And I think it's different when you're when you're rising and you're new to it than when you've been there for 20, 30, 40 years. Most of the leadership books are for people who are considerably older. Very, very few speak to the younger generations. That's I'll, I'll try not to get on my soapbox too often. <laughs> David, you've been a speechwriter and you've been a head speechwriter and you've been a leader of communications at the White House as well. And, you know, right now, in some ways, I feel like we as a country are struggling to communicate. Talk a bit, if you could, about the role of communication in leadership. If you want to be a leader, what are some of the best communication strategies? That's a good, good question. Um Look, I, I, th- I think if there's anything that's clear in the Biden presidency in particular, but it's been true of other administrations as well, that he who uh, captures the metaphors, he who sort of you know, captures the narrative or gives meaning to uh, a generation or to a period of time in history, you know, has, uh, has much more persuasive power. Uh, and that leadership is all about persuading other people to do things that the leader would like to do. There, you know, how do we define leadership is a good question. Over 200 definitions that float around in the literature, just as there are so many books that, that float around. I think the definition that appeals to me most, because I think it expresses it well, is by Gary Wills, classics historian at Northwestern, marvelous writer. He won a Pulitzer on his book about Gettysburg. He said a leader is someone who mobilizes others in pursuit of shared goals. A leader is someone who mobilizes others in pursuit of shared goals. Right at the beginning, David, leadership is evolving these days. We are no longer living in a world in which leaders are only formed in our nation's most elite institutions, groomed in public life, and take charge from the start. We're finding, first of all, that leaders do come from different backgrounds. But second, what worries me is we're beginning to equate as a society popularity and leadership. Yep, I agree. It's easy to be a celebrity. It's harder to be a leader. And we, all of us are surrounded by, and celebrities are fine. I mean, you know, whether they're in sports and so forth and or entertainment, there are several different fields. But I think the people who, who write history, the people who leave a deep imprint in the sand are ones who are true leaders. And I think in America right now, we're suffering from a shortage of heroes. I mean, the irony is in the age of social media, you've got the opportunity to speak to so many more people on a regular basis in different ways. And so there are bigger opportunities than ever for anybody to get into the, to the, to the message business. It's, it's open to everybody. Uh, and yet we haven't taken advantage of it. We're squandering it in, in terms of making the language all about division and all about why you're my enemy and, and no longer just my rival, but you're my enemy. So I'm 46 years old, but it seems like so much of the politics of my lifetime has been, yeah, elect me. I can stop the other guy. When did stopping the other guy become such a big part of political leadership? And should it be a part of political leadership at all? I think it's a discouraging part of leadership. There may be instances where one has, might resort to that, but I think it's a general proposition. It could be the ruination of a nation. It could lead us into authoritarianism. It certainly leads us into tribal divisions, which we've seen. So I, uh, and I, I can't give, put you an exact date on it, but I will tell you what a number of commentators think that the real turn in Congress came when Newt Gingrich was elected. That was 1994. And he brought a kind of rough and tumble 
take no prisoners uh, approach to leadership. It worked. And what happened was first the Republicans under Newt's leadership, you know, they, they gathered steam in the House and they won the House back. But then some of the people who got into the House also then ran for the Senate. And those Republicans brought to the Senate much of that same kind of poison. And then it spread to the Democrats. The Democrats are not, they don't have totally clean hands in this situation. Yeah, there's been a tendency on both sides now to try to destroy the other. Uh, and, and that's why it's become so much more difficult to govern. It's a paradox that with the coming of social media, you can rise much more quickly to a leadership position. Look at AOC. And, you know, she went from being a barmaid uh, to an important force in American politics in about two or three years. It's a very young person. The challenge is not getting recognition. The louder you shout, the more poisonous you shout, the more you carry a hatchet around, the more likely you are to get on TV these days. That's sort of the key to raising hell gets you some headlines, despite what it does to the country. We're just in a situation now which is very, very unusual. And I think we have to find our emphasis now on finding our ways out of this instead of going deeper into the hole. That's the question that I get so often from people who want to talk about politics. What gets us out of this deep partisan division? You raise the point, and I think it's a good one, that the media bears some responsibility for the fix that we're in. But but I don't see it happening. I don't I don't know from whence it comes to get us out of this deep partisan morass. I agree with you. Uh, I describe myself perhaps wrongly as a short-term pessimist <laughs> with a long-term optimist. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think I don't see I don't see a solution out there. In fact, I think it's really it's easy to think or foresee uh, that the, the the very thing you put your finger on. You're looking for a strong man. We're looking for someone, and that's why what gives Trump so much power is he's seen as much stronger personally. And in comparison to Biden, whom I think is a very sweet man and has more empathy, and I think is a much, much better leader for the country, you know, but he's having a hard time reaching people because he doesn't seem strong and he doesn't have a clear message. Biden is under increasing pressure not to run again. Now, he wants to run again, but there's going to be that division already. But if he did, but for whatever reason, he does not run again. The question becomes, is it the turn of Kamala Harris to become the new president? There are going to be a lot of people in the black community, and especially, who are going to say she's waited her turn. She's done a fair job. She, yeah, she hasn't been an all-star, but she's been solid. But if they push her out, you can imagine the blowback they're going to get from the black community, which, you know, after all, helped was vital to the election of, of, of Joe Biden. You know, they saved his career in South Carolina. And so you can see a revolution coming in the Democratic Party. So you've got that on one hand. And on the other hand, we have the obvious differences among Republicans about, you know, the Trumpites versus others. And the divisions there are even deeper than on the Democratic side. So you've got a situation where our, pol our politics can get very rough and very volatile and very unpredictable. And Americans will be seen overseas increasingly as unable to govern. And China will hold itself out as we have we have the new way, the way that works. We're not so into sort of these, all this intra-party squabbling. You know, we have a clearer path. We have, you know, you don't have as less freedom, but you get better results. And the world is moving in that direction, which is very dangerous, for, not just for the world, but for the United States. I read somewhere 
where you talked to Bill Clinton, who was pitching you the job in his White House in 1993. Yes. And you said that you didn't have to tell him what was wrong at his White House. <laughs> you said he told you. Yes. You said that he was a very reflective president. Talk to me, if you could, about the importance of reflection in good leadership. Do you feel like that's something that we've lost? Once you understand who you are, then you need to, take, to become author of your own life, which is possible but you have to keep working on it. And uh, I felt with Bill Clinton, when he called me about six months into his administration and asked me if I would come in, we've been friends for a long time, and asked me if I'd come in for a while. I said I would come, but I couldn't stay through elections. It was just too difficult. That was inappropriate, I thought. So I would do it for a year, year and a half or so. I stayed for a year and a half. But what I found when I got there was the Bill Clinton I knew when he was a private citizen or when he was governor was not the Bill Clinton who was then in the White House. He had lost his way in some ways. He found that going from Arkansas to Washington is a big leap, and that things were required of him and of Hillary that they hadn't been prepared for. They started getting slaughtered in public politics. And what had happened was he lost his confidence. He was searching. And so my answer to the Clinton team was, let's all move back. Let's step back here a little bit, and let's let Clinton be Clinton. Let him rediscover who he is. What we need is a president who was standing on his own feet, not on some elaborate construct that we on the staff might come up with. It would last about three days. But rather, let's give him a chance to recover. And he did. He got himself out of the ditch. And people said, well, you're a magician. You helped to restore his his place in politics. It wasn't me. It was him. It was what he did, how he pulled himself together, how he came back to recognize who he was and why he was there and what his goals were, what his purposes were, that he became a much better president again. How is it that when we had a nation of three million people in early and a founding period, we had a nation of three million people, and there were at least six world-class leaders in that three million people. You know, with Washington and Jefferson and Adams, and you, you can go down the list. And today we have over 300 million people, and we have one hell of a hard time finding one leader who's world-class. <laughs> There's something going on there culturally that we ought to wake up to. That's true. Your your points are all yeah. well made, David. You do come to this with a unique perspective. You talked about, because you've served four presidents, three Republicans. You talked about Bill Clinton. Give me just a very short profile of the three Republicans that you served, starting with Nixon. Well, Nixon was the smartest guy I've ever seen in politics and uh, the best strategist. Let me put it that way. He wasn't he was, he was not necessarily smart a lot of books, but he had a very, very good sense of strategy. He had studied history, he traveled the world. And I think if that had been all there was to him, he would have actually made a good president. But the fact was, he had demons inside him that you didn't recognize until you got to know him better. I didn't know for the first times I met him and worked with him. I saw a guy who seemed to be a good senator. He was walking around, impressive. But then I got closer in. They brought me more closer into the inner circle. And I said, oh, my God, you know, this is this is scary. And Nixon couldn't pull himself back together. And it was it, the, the right thing was to force him out. It was a scandal. The only way we're going to be able to recover and re- rebuild national trust was to move on. That led us to Jerry Ford first. And Ford was hugely different. And I think in the rear view mirror of history, Ford looks better and better because he brought us honesty and he brought us decency for a short period of time. He had the briefest stint of any president in the 20th century, but it was, in many ways, he was a bridge. He was a healing president that made that right. And Reagan? 
I didn't share a lot of his politics. I'm pro-choice, for example. And I was very surprised he wanted me in there as a result. But but he did. And I, I must tell you, I think that as much as I didn't necessarily, I was less conservative, let's say. I thought he was the best leader we'd had, at least since Kennedy. And maybe going back all the way to FDR. He had about him, I think he reached working class American people who were patriotic and didn't feel like their leaders had been very patriotic in return. And Reagan seemed very real. Uh, and he had a, such a great high regard for the Oval Office. You know, uh, famously, when he was shot, his car took him to the hospital. It parked in such ways that when he got out, when Reagan got out of the car, the press couldn't see him. The car hid the line of vision for the press. And so Reagan got out and he buttoned his coat and he walked around the car, across the driveway, as if nothing had gone wrong. And when he reached the other side, when the press could no longer see him, he physically collapsed. And they put him on a gurney and rushed him in for surgery. But it was that important to him to maintain the dignity of the presidency. David, one last question before we go, and we really appreciate this. We're all about reading with this podcast and how important it is. And I'm curious if you see a correlation between presidents who are well-read and presidents or individuals who are strong leaders. Yes. Uh, I, I don't know if you've, uh, Charlie, you've ever been out to the Truman Library. It's my favorite library because it's so unpretentious. And it, you really get a sense of the man. You can actually pick up the documents. You can actually handle his letters that he wrote to his wife and that sort of thing. It's very, very unusual. But I came across a speech there that he had made to high school students on a regular basis when they visited an independence at the library. And Truman said to these high school students, not every reader is a leader, but every leader is a reader. And I found that to be increasingly true. He was the only president in the 20th century who didn't go to college. And that was because his parents were too poor when he came out, they couldn't afford it. And he wound up spending seven years behind a mule tilling the farm, the farmland. But he also then spent a lot of his time reading, just as Lincoln had done. Jack Kennedy was then president. He hadn't been president very long. It was his first year of office. And Barbara's book came out in the spring of that first year, 1961. And Kennedy read the book, which talks so freely about the guns of August and how we got into the First World War. And Kennedy thought, I want my officers to read this. And he sent it to the officers' quarters across the country, across the world, with an order to read it. And people did read it everywhere. And so when later, when it was in October of that same year, we discovered that the, the Russians had put those missiles into Cuba. And we had the Cuban Missile Crisis arise. And Kennedy had to decide what to do. Kennedy got that book out and, again, referred people to it that you cannot allow miscalculations to build up in great powers because it's so you can get so easily into war as we did in World War One. And he called Bobby in. He said, I never want to see a book written about this administration called The Guns of October. And it slowed down the process. When the advisors around Kennedy were trying to decide what to do in the Cuban Missile Crisis, their first agreement was we should strike out of the blue, no, no questions asked, and destroy the missile sites and, and by the way, take out what we need to take out in Cuba to, to get through it. That was an agreement, included the president. And then two or three people around the president, starting with Bobby, also his secretary of the Treasury, who was a Republican. But Bobby was especially anxious that that administration not be known as the one who had its own Pearl Harbor in reverse. And they, he got people to go back to the drawing board and to rethink what the solution should be. 
And they came up with the idea, let's drop this notion of a strike out of the blue. Let's do a quarantine, basically. And let's, you know, force the issue. And that saved us. At the time, we didn't know for sure whether the Russians, they, we knew they had nuclear weapons. but we didn't know whether they had the nuclear weapons mounted on missiles. And we weren't quite sure about that. We thought probably they had not gotten that far along. In the years that followed, we learned for the first time that they indeed had missiles on attached to rockets. If we had done that kind of Pearl Harbor in reverse, we would not have taken out all the missiles on the first strike. We would have had missiles still operable. And the Cubans and the Russians would have been able to launch missiles against us. They would hit Washington, D.C. And if that were to happen, it would have been a conflagration and we would have had the nuclear war that ended all wars. But Barbara Tuckman had a lot to do with it. She had an influence because Kennedy had read. He was a reader. I'm a fierce believer now. We can cite example after example that reading is one of the most important things a leader should do. David Gergen, I had a chance to interview you. You were in the White House. I had a chance to listen to your lectures at Harvard. And now I get a chance to talk to you as an author. Uh, All at all times with important points to make. Thank you very much for being with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, David, so much for joining us on The Book Case. Well, thank you, Charlie, and thank you, Kate. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. David Gergen, a few rapid-fire questions for you before you go. Do you prefer book, e-reader, or audio? Book. Hardcover. What's the most influential book in your life? I'd like to say the Bible, but that wouldn't probably be true. Favorite book to read to your kids when they were young? Ah, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. A revered book, David, that you wish you hadn't read, that it was sort of a waste of time. Well, I, I, I read a lot of books about presidents and about Churchill. I have found those to be nourishing because they, they, the books talk to each other in some ways. You know, they're, they're good books are really co- part of a conversation, ongoing conversation. David, do you have any books that are still on your bucket list? I, I, I enjoy history and biography the most. Really? Found, and yes, I, I just think they're the most helpful to me. I, I started studying 
political science in college, and I got through one semester, and I said, political science is like a snapshot. It's important, but it's like a snapshot in time, whereas histories tell you how you got there and what people did about it. And I, I find history and biography just uh, much more interesting. Do you have a favorite biography of all time? Franklin Roosevelt series that have come out over the years. There are some books from the Civil War. You know, I thought McPherson was a particularly good author. I'm going on a trek. I'm going to walk the battlefields at, uh, at Gettysburg uh, with McPherson, who's a wonderful historian. But he's taking 10 or 15 of us out for two days to walk the battlefield. That, to me, is ideal reading because you combine the reading with, uh, with the experience. He was a professor of mine. And finally, David, in five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? Uh, a time to give back. David Gergen, a fascinating man, a fascinating career in politics, and this is a really interesting book. When I read this book, I thought of a a Looney Tunes cartoon that existed in the 1960s with Sam the Sheepdog and Ralph the Wolf. And every day they would do battle while Ralph tried to steal sheep under Sam's nose. And they would walk up to a tree and they would clock in and they would battle each other all day. And sometimes the bell would ring while Sam the sheepdog had his, you know, hands squeezing, you know, Ralph's throat and Ralph was holding a stick of dynamite and that bell would ring and they would drop it and they'd say, let's pick this up tomorrow, Sam. Okay, Ralph. And that was sort of how I have always wanted politics to be, that we can throw dynamite at each other, that we can draw blood when, it's, when we're on the clock. But afterwards, we put it down and we go home and we feel like we've done right for the day. And again, I feel like that's something that we've lost. And that's what I took away from this talk, was that we have to get it back. Um, what did you take away from it? Well, as I suspect... When David Gergen was writing the book, I don't think he probably ever thought of Sam and Ralph, <laughs> if, if those are the names, Kate, that I've got right. Um, but, but, you know, it's a lot like the relationship that used to exist between Tip O'Neill when he was Speaker of the House and Ronald Reagan when he was president, that they had agreed that they would slam each other during the day and be political opponents and rip into one another. And then after six o'clock, they were friends. But David Gergen, with new things to say, so much about his appeal to young leadership. It is really important. Um, One thing I do want to mention in relation to David Gergen, uh, for a while he was paired with Mark Shields on uh, the NewsHour on PBS, and Mark Shields passed away this past week. And as just a young reporter, Mark Shields befriended me. He was always there with some helpful advice. Uh, He was a wonderful man, humorous. And as I think you said, Kate, not one of those foam-at-the-mouth commentators. Yeah, no, he didn't uh, foam-at-the-mouth. He didn't throw things at the screen. He was just a smart, intelligent voice on the issues of the day, and I will miss him. Brooks and Shields being my favorite part of the PBS NewsHour. Um, I will miss him very much. A voice still that will be missed. Uh, uh, He was very much an important voice in the political sphere. And so now to our independent bookstore. When she heard we were doing this podcast, one of my former producers at World News and a woman who used to be in charge of news coverage for ABC, now living in Maine, Mimi Gerbst was her name, said to me, you've got to include print, a wonderful bookstore in Portland, Maine. We had a chance to talk with the two owners of print, Emily Russo and Josh Christie. 
We are joined by Emily Russo and Josh Christie, who are the co-owners of Print Colon, a bookstore in Portland, Maine. Josh, what's hot? at print colon a bookstore i appreciated the inclusion of the colon there it was super important in our branding and it sometimes <laughs> left out so i appreciate the inclusion if you could do that every time that's perfect um people are reading a lot of romance actually which is something that historically has struggled at independent bookstores for reasons largely of of i think bias both within customers and within a lot of booksellers but Romance is great, especially during the summer. You know, it is light. It is fun. We have a great local romance author by the name of Martha Waters, who has a new book that just came out this year. She's been selling really well. The great NPR commentator, Linda Holmes, has some kind of uh, literary romance books. Her second one comes out on Tuesday of this week. I have a theory about maybe why it took romance a little longer to catch up at the smaller independent bookstore. And maybe that's because you don't want your neighbor to know that you're spending the weekend reading a bodice ripper. And maybe you're a little bit, you're wearing the cone of shame when you read the book. I feel like when you go into the domestic affairs section, the titles themselves are angrier than they used to be, you know, Midnight in Washington, the real Anthony Fauci. I mean, do you feel like there has been that the domestic affairs reflecting our country's, you know, current attitudes has become angrier? Things are so polarized that, you know, most of the books from the right are not about disagreements with the left. They're about hating the left. And, and you know, the affect is kind of the same going in the other direction. And that stuff is red meat to the groups that are buying lots of books to put books on the bestseller list. So I think it does reflect the tenor in the country right now. Yeah, which is a shame, but is, is, you know, we all live in reality, right? We don't have as much data as we'd like maybe about what's being published and what the tone is of those books. So we're kind of beholden to what's coming out. And that's where the conversation is in the country right now. I was pleased to see that you have a list of 35 local authors on your website who will sign books uh, for customers if they want them, including Josh, who wrote a book on Maine beer, which I applaud. Yes. Um, But um, do local authors sell better in Maine than perhaps I might think local authors sell elsewhere? I think local authors sell well for their local environment, period. Um, Certainly our local authors sell extraordinarily well for us. They are our best sellers, especially if we do an event for them. We take pride in it, but we also make sure that we make the initiative every time we know that a local author or a new author is coming out with a book. We we take the onus on us to reach out to them and say, hey, we're your local independent bookstore. We would love to do a pre-order campaign for you. We would love to have an event for you. And that certainly helps drive sales. Um, and I hope that that is true for other independent bookstores across the nation, too. I hope that your your local Minneapolis bookstore is that their bestsellers are their local Minneapolis um, writers. So, you know, we yes, we we want to own that. We want to own that piece of main writing and main history and make sure that it is a very prominent space in our store. Nobody, when they're a little kid, says, I want to make a bazillion dollars. So I'm going to go into books. So, I mean, it is something that you have to love. Well, maybe Jeff Bezos did, but but most of us did not. I'll start with Emily, but I want to ask you both. Was there a book for you where when you put it down, you were like, I want to do this for the rest of my life? 
there wasn't a book for me. There was a bookstore for me. Um, my parents, we went to the, to the vineyard for a week or two, just about every summer. And my favorite day during the vacation was the first rainy day when we got to go to Bunch of Grapes in Vineyard Haven on Martha's Vineyard. And we would essentially, I mean, within reason, of course, but we essentially had carte blanche, which means we could pick out as many books as we wanted. And that was our reading for the summer. And gosh, I loved that day. I just came back to the idea of working in a bookstore because um, the bunch of grapes was just in the back of my mind. And I ended up getting a job as an events coordinator for the Odyssey Bookshop in, in South Hadley, Massachusetts. And I loved doing the events, but it, it I don't think it took more than two months before I realized, like, I want to do what my boss is doing. I want to buy the books. I want to choose the books that are coming into the bookstore. And that's that's my... <laughs> my bookselling villain origin story, as they say. It was the only place where my father would buy me yeah. close to anything I wanted. Yeah. You walked into the toy store, forget yeah. it. You got one tiny little plastic thing that was, you know, what you would, that you'd throw away in a minute. But when you got to the bookstore, you could really... Uh, Josh, what about you? What, what did it for you? Is there a book? I don't think there was a specific book beyond just generally, you know, I started reading young and my love of reading meant that Somewhere in the back of my head was like, oh, a job that involves books in some way would be a cool career, uh, you know, as a kid or as an adult, just thinking about what I would like to do and that idea of really going into a workplace and doing work that you find meaningful and enjoy every day. So like in my head, I know that like the picture books caps for sale and then, you know, the great main uh, New England children's book author, Robert McCloskey, and Make Way for Ducklings, and One Morning in Maine, and Blueberries for Sale. Those are the books that made me start falling in love with reading. And then uh, my first summer in college, I was looking for a summer job and got a part-time summer job for a chain of bookstores in Maine called Sherman's Books and started working for them. Ended up working for them for about 15 years, but uh, they were the thing that really made that switch in my head, Kate, like you mentioned, from I really enjoy books to, oh, this could be a job that I could actually do for hopefully the rest of my life, or at least a lot of my life. Each of you, one book you would recommend for the summer. Josh? So I have been reading and falling in love with, speaking of authors I loved as a kid, uh, I'm trying to tie everything together in one answer. So about authors I loved as a kid, great main authors, books about Maine, um, a couple of years ago, HarperCollins put out a revised edition of The Letters of E.B. White, who people may know as, you know, a famous quote, I'd rather feel bad in Maine than good anywhere else, is attributed to him. He wrote Charlotte's Web. He wrote Stuart Little. Uh, he was the white of Strunk and White's uh, grammar guide. But his letters are astonishing. The first one in the book is one that he wrote when he was age nine about how he was planning to go to Cornell in about a decade. You know, he, he had his plan laid out <laughs> early, and amazingly, the letter was found for this book. And it is a great survey of a literary life because it covers the time that he was working for The New Yorker and also his letters with his editors when he was writing all of his books. But also so many of the letters are uh, to his friends and to his wife when he lived in Maine, um, first part-time and then full-time later in his life. And it is just, like, it, it's well-written. There are so many quotes you could pull out of there. And it is also just like a warm hug of a book. It's it's lovely. <laughs> and Emily, how about you? 
Oh gosh. So I do, I do this weird, weird thing to read as much as possible and to be able to recommend as much as possible. I tend to read about 75 books at a time. Um, so I'm trying to pull one from my head and it's causing me some issues, but I'm actually <laughs> going to go with, um, a local author, Fook Tron, um, who is the owner of a tsunami tattoo here in Portland, Maine was also taught Latin at Wayne Fleet Academy. It is a wonderful memoir of moving from Saigon to the States as a young boy and there's a, a special connection between the two of us because I went to college in the town that he then grew up in. But it's this wonderful memoir that about his reading life, but also the punk music that he was into at the time. He just does a really interesting structure, how a certain book that he read that was recommended to him by this e English teacher influenced a certain moment in his life. So each chapter is a different book, but the themes of that book are then... Um, mirrored in what he's going through in his life at, at that moment. It's really just absolutely beautifully well done. Josh Christie, Emily Russo, thank you both very much and all the best to you and to print, colon, a bookstore to be found on Congress Street in Portland, Maine. Now, as per usual, you're going to want to stay tuned because we have a list of great folks who work on this show and then David Gergen will sign us off. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Iru Ekpenobi, and Elizabeth Russo. Don't give up on America. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though... It's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.